Hello, my peeps again. I have no idea why I started using that, but I guess it's here to stay. This is It's All Relative, yet another true crime podcast. This one tries to include a family theme because why not make this subject that much more horrible? Saying that also makes this a good time to mention that this podcast is not for the faint of heart. I don't go out of my way to be gory, but I also don't pull my punches. Listener, beware. If you've done the smart thing, you've started your Routier family journey with the previous episode, and you will know the very basics of this case. If the previous episode was your first foray into the Darleyverse, welcome! I'm so glad you've come out from under your rock. Before we go too far, Billy Joel will set the mood, and I'll see you on the other side. June 6th, 1996. It is the early morning and all hell is breaking loose in Rowlett, Texas. The two young Routier boys have been stabbed to death. Their mother, Darley, is in a blood-soaked nightshirt. Most of it is her own. The question soon on the minds of the police, is Darley guilty of killing her children and setting up the scene? Spoiler alert, Darley sits on death row, so the great state of Texas has decided her guilt. Important information for those of you who aren't obsessed with this case, and hell, even for those of you who are obsessed. Go to your podcast player, whichever one you use, it doesn't matter, and type D-A-R-L-I-E space R-O-U-T-I-E-R in the search bar. Then start counting how many episodes pop up. Don't worry, put this podcast on pause, I'll still be here when you come back. Whenever you get sick of counting, come back here. Push play. You back? Okay, good. There are so many talking heads, blah, 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 blahing about Darley Routier, and they all think they know what's what. Some of those are already correcting me on my data. Point of note, Darley's necklace was not embedded in her wound. I have seen the evidence photos, though, and there are nicks that would take a bit of force to achieve. But that's as far as I can go with that determination. Thank you, YouTube viewers, for your information on that. Still, I have no fucking idea whether she did it or not, so we get to figure this out together. Now, right off the bat, there is something really important to note. Practically every document in this case, at best, is unreliable. The 911 call is extremely difficult to make out. We talked about that last time. And the transcript of that call has the following as its subhead. And I quote, This transcript was done after the state enhanced the recording and is not accurate. End quote. 
In addition, the court reporter, meaning the individual charged with accurately transcribing everything said during any and all of the proceedings concerning this case, conducted in a court of law, made 18,000 errors in the 6,000 pages of transcripts. This did not include the punctuation mistakes. These mistakes did include misspelled words and misidentification of the speaker. And that information came from the transcripts of her disciplinary hearing. She was not involved in the making of those transcripts. How meta would that have been? Said court reporter was let go, and an attempt to reconstruct the transcripts was made. But the fact remains that one cannot be sure how accurate the transcripts really are. The appeals court determined that all those mistakes did not affect the jury's decision, but I'm not convinced that's really a reliable litmus test. All that having been said, let's get into it. Mark McClish is a former U.S. Marshal who has become a bigwig in something he calls and sells as statement analysis. And yes, he trademarked that. A lot of people take a lot of stock in what this man says. Riddle Me That had McClish as a guest to evaluate Darley's 911 call. You heard the 911 call last time, so I'm going to use just the transcripts for now. The call starts off like this, quote, Operator, 911, what's your emergency? Darley, somebody came in here, they, they broke in. Operator, ma'am? Darley, they just stabbed me and my children. Operator, what? Darley, they just stabbed me and my kids, my little boys. Operator, who did? Who did? Darley, my little boy is dying. End quote. Now McClish says, So how does analyzing a 911 call differ from analyzing other statements? Well, in a 911 call, the first thing we're looking at is the plea for help. You know, what is the caller asking for? Now, an innocent caller who maybe witnessed something or came across somebody you know, that's unconscious will ask for help for the victim. For example, a husband might call 911 and say, my wife's passed out, I can't revive her, send an ambulance. So they tell us what's going on and they ask for help, send an ambulance. But a guilty caller, perhaps the caller is the perpetrator, a lot of times won't ask for help. But they'll say in that same example with an unconscious uh, spouse, they may say, you know, I need, I need an ambulance. But they haven't told the operator why they need an ambulance or their wife or spouse is in trouble. And again, notice what they're saying. I need an ambulance, not my wife or my spouse, but I need the ambulance. And so that's what we're looking for in a 911 call, uh, the plea for help. And in Darley's case, she starts out saying, uh, somebody came in here, they broke in, they just stabbed me and my children. Well, she doesn't ask specifically for help. And yes, there's an inherency when you call 911, you expect them to provide you with some assistance. But again, most people will ask, send an ambulance send the police, wherever the case might be. She doesn't ask for that. She just tells, first thing she tells the operator is what happened. Somebody came in, they broke in. And then notice the order. They just stabbed me and my children. She talks about herself first versus her children. Now, her children are dying or are already dead, uh, some of them. We expect her, you know, most mothers are going to ask for help. My children have been stabbed. You'll send an ambulance. Even though they've been stabbed themselves, they may not mention that or mention that second, but she puts herself first, her children second. It was a very weak uh, plea for help. So the order that somebody asks for things, is that the order in which things are important to them? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And order is important. We can learn a lot uh, from order. Sometimes we can detect deception. Sometimes we can gain more information by the order a person mentions. Say. And so she mentions herself first. So that means her concern lies with herself. Correct. And I believe, I'm not exactly sure the extent of her injuries, but obviously they weren't as severe as her children because she survived and the children did not. Her children are the ones that you know need the ambulance more than she does. But again, she mentions herself first, her children second. Her injuries were pretty severe. She nearly nicked her carotid artery, but it was it required surgery. But there's almost varying explanations as to how serious they were. They weren't life threatening. It would seem that the concern would be probably for most people in a situation such as that would be for your children who the injuries are clearly they go on to be fatal. They're very grave injuries. But yet, like you said, she mentions herself first. Absolutely. And again, she never specifically requests assistance. To this, I say, meh. There's no training given on how to call 911. To this day, there are fire and tornado drills in schools in the Midwest. I'm told that they do the same thing for earthquakes in earthquake-prone areas. When I was a kid, we also did drills on how to exit the school bus in an emergency. My last job, we had active shooter training but I have never once done a course for or a drill on how to talk to the 911 operator. I don't believe I know anyone who has. Somewhere in my early adulthood, I was informed by someone who should know that the first thing you should do when 911 picks up is to say which service you need. 911 already has your information the instant you dial the number. At least they did when everybody only used landlines. What 911 does not have is the reason you are calling. If you start the call with what service you need, ambulance, fire trucks, police, they can begin mobilizing the correct help while they are getting whatever other information they require. Up to that point in my life, the point at which I learned to ask for the service first when calling 911, I had never thought of that at all. I had never thought about what order to give the information to 911. Up until that point, my instinct was to actually give out my address first and then say what had happened. Which service never came into the equation because I assumed they would determine what I needed based on what I told them. In the UK, the 999 operator begins the call with, 999, which service do you require? This would prompt the caller to answer, ambulance please, hurry, she's been stabbed, or something to that effect. But the cliche opening in the US is, 911, what's your emergency? And Darley very logically begins telling the operator what happened, telling her what the emergency is. As for the order of events indicating the importance of those things to Darley, well, you would have to include the man as being most important then, because he actually came first. Darley says, somebody came in here, they broke in, they just stabbed me and my children. Now, a cynical person would say that even further proves the point that Darley is guilty, meaning she was trying to assert from the get-go that there was an intruder. And while I am a cynical person, I also have to say, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I think Darley's in shock. The paramedics determined that she wasn't in physical shock, in medical shock. We talked about that last week. Okay, but I'm not convinced about her not being in mental shock. And yes, they are different things. Think about it. She's just woken up out of what sounds like a sound sleep. With the time frame, which we'll get into later, she's probably in the middle of a circadian cycle. 
to find an intruder in her house. She's bleeding rather profusely down her torso, and her children have been slaughtered. I think she just told the operator what happened in the order in which she saw things or knew things had happened, because that was the easiest way her brain could process it at that moment. And as for her saying, her first, me, and then her children, me and my children, sometimes moms tend to think of their kids as a package deal. It all involves around her and her children, the mom and her children, me and my children. It's just the way we think about it. Also, she may have put herself first the first time she tells the operator what's going on, but the second time she doesn't. Quote, operator, what's going on? Darley, somebody came in while I was sleeping. Me and my little boys were sleeping downstairs. Some man came in, stabbed my babies, stabbed me. I woke up. I was fighting. And we'll talk about that word later. He ran out through the garage, threw the knife down. My babies are dying. They're dead. Oh, my God. End quote. He stabbed her babies, and then she says, he stabbed me. I also think she makes up for any instance of putting herself first, verbally, by constantly repeating, my babies are dying. McClish also has a problem with Darlie's pronoun usage. So what about pronouns? Well, pronouns are important. We can learn a lot by looking at the pronouns. And what we see in her 911 call is she has some changing pronouns. Again, she started out by saying somebody came in here. So somebody is a singular pronoun. But then she goes on to say they just stabbed me and my children. So she went from a singular uh, person, one person, to the plural pronoun they. Now, in today's society, we have what's known as the singular they. Uh, If we don't know the sex of the person, sometimes people use the plural pronoun they. But in this case, she knows it's a man. In fact, later on, she'll say some man came in. And later on in her testimony and stuff, she'll say it was one person. But yet, she has a tendency to sometimes say it's one person, sometimes use the plural pronoun they. And the they is way out of line because, again, she knows the sex of the person. Okay, stay with me for a minute. Have you ever listened to someone just talk? I don't mean having a conversation with them. I mean, listen to how they talk, when they use a name versus a pronoun, present versus past or future tense, that kind of thing. We love to catch out liars and criminals using this kind of detection. But what most people don't realize is that they are only being that critical of someone else's words when they are ready to find something wrong with them. No one sits and listens and judges or sits and listens and just notices when it's just a normal day. McClish does have a point about the singular pronouns, they, them. Those pronouns have become the primary mode of a neuter singular in modern use. The grammarian me kind of gets pissed at this, but I'm slowly moving into the modern age. AKA, we use that to indicate one person of any gender, even though it is technically a plural pronoun. I actually think my generation, Gen X, started this. And Darlie is a member of that generation. Not that I thought about it at the time, but I remember using he or she and they interchangeably in the 1980s and 90s, even if I knew the gender of the person I was referring to. I probably still do. And I'm pretty sure that I was more likely to use the pronouns they, them, if I didn't know who the person was, even if I knew the person's gender. If I didn't know their name or anything about them, I would be more inclined to use they, them. Hell, I just did it. So, again, 
Darley, using he and then they is not an issue for me, and I don't think McClish had a proper understanding of this usage in the time period. Next, the podcaster asks about Darley's changing demonyms for Damon and Devon. I have edited this a little bit for content, but I have not changed the overall meaning of what he's saying. So during the call, Darley says, they stabbed me and my kids stabbed my boys. She later says, my little boy is dying. And then she goes on to say, my babies are dying. Also, she refers to Damon and Devin as babies, kids, children, and boys throughout the call. Is this significant? It is significant uh, because everybody has their own what I call personal dictionary. Certain words mean certain things to people. For example, some people may view a firearm as a gun and somebody else may call it a pistol. Again, everybody has their own personal dictionary. Now, in statement analysis, there are no synonyms. Every word means something different. I mean, gun and pistol may refer to the same firearm, but it doesn't mean the exact same thing. And so a change in language is an indication of deception unless we see a justification for that change. And so what we see here, as you pointed out, is that she used several nouns to describe her children. She called them children, kids, uh, little boys. And so we see a change in language. If she viewed them as her little boys, she would always refer to them as her little boys, unless there's a reason why the language changed, a justifiable reason. As I look at it, I don't see a reason why the language should change. In statement analysis, there are no synonyms. Every word means something different. Puss squeeze me? This one really gets my goat. Children, kids, little boys. Seriously? I've always called my children several different things, and yes, they all mean slightly different things, but none of them mean that I killed my kids. Also, there is a time when your babies will become offended by the fact you call them your babies. Partially because it's a habit, and partially because in your heart, they are your babies, changing what you call them is a difficult thing. You will make mistakes. I can easily see Darley either using several words for her boys in the first place, or be at that point where the boys, either one or both, have said, Mom, I'm not a baby. So potentially, mind you, in this phone call, she's flopping between how she sees them, as in, my babies are dying, and how they want to be seen, a.k.a. my kids. McClish then says, I don't see a reason why they should change. Dude, just because you don't see something doesn't mean it's not there, Mr. McClish. As the 911 call continues, Darley begins talking to Darren and then Officer Waddell. I can barely make them out when listening, but they both make it into the transcript. The operator also tells Darley to, quote, stay on the phone with me, end quote. So Darley is left trying to have a conversation with a stern 911 operator, her frantic husband, and a dispassionate and unengaged police officer who isn't even sure if she's on the phone at all let alone on with 911. Yet people treat the call as if she's only talking to the operator. Well, at one point, she makes the comment to the, to the operator, uh, we got to find out who it was. And I view that as a very unusual statement, because especially in a 911 call, you, people usually won't talk about who did this, who committed the crime. They're just concerned, especially when your children have been injured and need uh, medical assistance, that's what your focus is on. So for her to just at some point say, uh, we got to find out who it was, uh, was very odd. We've got to find out who it was. McClish says this is odd. And yes, if it had come out of the blue, it would have been suspicious. 
But Darley wasn't talking to the operator. At 1 minute 24 seconds, Darley says, I quote, Darren, I don't know who it was. We've got to find out who it was, end quote. McClish makes this further comment. Well, yeah, what, what she said was, uh, I woke up, I was fighting. He ran out through the garage, threw the knife down. This is a major point of contention, particularly in the trial. The I was fighting statement. Darley insists she said I was frightened, not fighting. The crux of the matter is whether she started fighting with the intruder at the sofa or somewhere else. The prosecution uses this statement as additional evidence that Darley had claimed she was fighting with the intruder at the sofa, which they claim there is no evidence to substantiate. Thus, Darley is lying. But Darley insists she says frightened. Listening to the call will not help. Many, many people better than me at audio recovery have tried. But let me remind you of one thing before you make a judgment. 2018, Yanny or Laurel. Look it up if you don't know what this is. It's a thing and it's relevant. It's all about pitch and tone. I've even heard it myself in recording and then editing this podcast. Saying one thing and then hearing another. I have made an effort to speak very clearly, even over-enunciate, so this won't happen. But it still does. Audiologists know what I'm talking about. Then we hear about the fingerprints. So Darley says during the 911 call, quote, God, I bet if we could have gotten the prints, maybe, maybe, with regards to the knife. The fact that she's even considering forensics at this time bothers so many people. Does this bother you as well? It does. Again, because uh, the focus now is not on help for my children. She's shifting to, again, trying to catch this person. But also, you know, she's talking about fingerprints. Uh, She talks about how she picked up the knife. And so now she's explaining why her fingerprints are going to be on the knife. Why perhaps you won't find the killer's fingerprints because maybe she, you know, smudged them or something. Uh, but it's very unusual for, for any 911 caller to focus on, you know, let's catch this person when the immediate thought is, I need help for my children. But again, no one is remembering the third person in her frantic conversation. Officer Waddell is there. Most of his questioning of Darley happens before the end of the 911 call. He testifies to it at the bond hearing and at the trial. So any of the questions he asks her about the perpetrator, about the weapon, is all happening on that call. And someone actually heard him because Waddell does show up on the 911 transcript. From the 911 call, quote, Police officer. Again, that's Waddell. Nothing's gone, Mrs. Routier. Darley Routier. Oh my God, oh my God, why would they do this? And then there's some more radio chatter. Police officer, Waddell. Unintelligible. The problem, Mrs. Routier. Operator, what'd he say? Darley, why would they do this? Darley, I'm unintelligible. Operator, okay, listen, ma'am, I need to, I need to let the officers in the front door, okay? Darley, what? Operator, ma'am. Darley, what? What? Operator, need to let the police officers in the front door. Darley, unintelligible. His knife was lying over there and I already picked it up. Operator, okay, it's all right, it's okay. Darley, God, I bet if we have gotten the prints, maybe, maybe. Police officer, 
Waddell, unintelligible. Moore dispatched back and forth on the radio. Darley, there's nothing touched. Operator, okay, ma'am. Darley, there's nothing touched, oh my God. Police officer, unintelligible, end quote. The operator definitely thinks Darley is talking to her, or possibly hysterical and kind of talking to no one. The operator doesn't know Waddell is there. Plus, at the moment when you hear Darley talking about the fingerprints, you can't really hear anyone else, so it's easy to assume that she's talking to the operator. But she's not. She's answering Waddell's questions. And sometimes she's probably answering Darren. Um, she's trying to make it sound like, yeah, I'm a concerned parent. I need to find out who harmed my kids. But again, a real parent is going to focus on the children. And let's not forget that a real parent is going to focus on the children. I'm sorry, but what a jackass thing to say. Before I move on, I need to point out that I don't know very much about Mr. McClish other than what I told you. He may have decades of interview and interrogation under his belt, but I worry that he has developed these techniques based on a flawed premise. In other words, when Perp X blinked his eyes, McClish thought he was lying, and lo and behold, they were able to pin the crime on him. Perp X is convicted equals Perp X is guilty. Perp X is guilty means McClish was right about the eye blink. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Are we exchanging the read technique for statement analysis without actually improving anything? But I digress yet again. Sergeant Walling arrives. Now, up to this point, the house has not been cleared. According to Waddell, when there is only one officer, the protocol is for that officer to stay with the victims as a guard until backup arrives. Then the house can be cleared and then medical aid can be given. Waddell has been criticized for not checking the garage for the perpetrator and not giving any medical aid to the dying boys or to Darley. In fact, Darren Routier testified at the trial that Waddell was less than useless. Quote, question, okay, did you ever see a police officer? Answer, I did at the time. Question, all right, did you see one that you know to be David Waddell? Answer, yes, sir. Question, okay, Darren. When he walked into the room, Darren, I want you to get a hold of yourself and I want you to tell the jury what David Waddell did when he walked into the room. Did he take over and did he start issuing orders about how to take care of and attend to and render first aid to the children? Answer. As soon as he walked into the room, he went and he froze and he did not move. Question. Did he get his gun out? Answer. No, sir. He didn't do anything. I kept screaming at him, telling him to help me, and he wouldn't help me. Question. Was Darley trying to get him to go back to the garage? Answer. Yes, sir. She was. Question. Did he finally go back into the kitchen? Answer. He stopped about halfway into the kitchen, then he came back. Question. Would he go back to the garage? Answer. No, sir. He just stood there like... Question. Did he get his gun out? Answer. No, sir. Question. Okay. Answer. I never saw a gun. Question. Were all three of you in shock? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. The police officer included? Answer. Yes, sir. End quote. I kind of think Darren's version is over the top, but I also understand how it must have looked to the parents of dying children when the police officer who they thought would help them is just standing there occasionally asking questions. I too think this is a shit way to conduct yourself. Protocol or no. When Walling arrived, he began the search of the house, starting with the garage. According to Walling's testimony, he went through the kitchen 
In the kitchen, there was a broken wine glass with some blood around it and a vacuum lying on the floor. On the island was a day timer and a wallet. On the counter were several bracelets and rings. Also on the counter, which Walling does not mention, was a bloody kitchen knife. The door from the utility room to the garage was pushed shut but not latched. There was blood on and around the door handle. He does not indicate how he pulled the door open, but he does, and he enters the garage. He steps in the garage a couple feet and then looks to one side, then the other, and he calls it cleared. He also notices that there is a large but low window which is open and the screen has been slashed in a T formation. Walling makes his way into the backyard. At that time, another officer arrives and Walling has him help search. There is a wooden fence around the backyard and the gate sticks and they have to shove it open. The light is not on in the yard, but it comes on when the two officers walk by the spot. This is a small pool house type building in the backyard. The lights do not turn off for a while. The length of time the backyard lights stay on would eventually be found to be 18 minutes. The search ended upstairs where they find eight-month-old Drake awake in his cot. They also find the dog who has been yipping away. About 4.30 in the morning, extra patrol officers were tasked with canvassing the neighborhood. In this canvas, one Sergeant Ward discovered a sock lying on the ground next to a rubbish bin and just above and next to the opening of a sewer drain. The sock would be identified as Darren's, and the smear of blood would later be confirmed as belonging to both Damon and Devon. These pieces of evidence would be used as evidence against Darley at trial. And that is a good place to leave it for today. If you like the podcast, like, rate, review, and subscribe. Contact information as well as the Patreon are in the show notes. I know some of you already have things you want to tell me. The Arithmics will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative.